From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of HPS Insights and our special series looking at the complexities and disruption facing higher education. We're joined today by Matt Peralt, Director of the Center on Science and Technology Policy at Duke University and also an Associate Professor of Practice at the Sanford School of Public Policy. Matt recently returned to his alma mater, Duke, where he received his MPP after spending eight years working on the public policy team at Facebook, where he led the company's policy development team. He covered issues ranging from antitrust to human rights and oversaw the company's policy work on emerging technologies like AI and virtual reality. In July last summer, Matt testified in Congress on the competitiveness of the technology sector. Matt, welcome to HBS Insights. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, um, you're the type of person who apparently wasn't satisfied with the challenges facing just the tech industry and you jumped into <laughs> higher ed. Another, I, I did. Uh, I, I, I didn't know that higher ed would be as challenging as the tech industry, but, it, but in many ways it is. None of us probably saw this coming, although as, as we have shown, there were some, some indicators, but um, uh-huh clearly a brighter light on it now. Um, yep. So a lot to talk about um, here with you today. Why don't you tell us about the Center on Science and Technology Policy at Duke and um, your role as the director there? Yep. So I um, left Facebook uh, on a Thursday in mid-October, started at Duke uh, the following Monday. Um, and uh, since then, since, since we launched the center uh, in October, we've been focusing on three different areas. So the first is policy development and policy engagement work where we're really trying to focus on developing tech policy solutions that the tech industry and members of Congress and policymakers throughout the world can use to make our tech products better. Um, The second component of what we do is learning and the student experience. So expanding course offerings at Duke in tech policy and tech, tech ethics issues, as well as looking for career opportunities for Duke students, either in places like DC or in Silicon Valley, or also within the thriving uh, technology community here in the in the Triangle area with Research Triangle Park and Durham and Raleigh, sure. um, all uh, uh, building better and better tech tech companies um, by the day. Um, and then the third component is community. And so I've been really interested in figuring out how to look for projects that are tech policy related within the Durham community. So those three pillars: um, policy engagement, policy development learning in the student experience and uh, community have been the three focuses of our work to date. Well, it, it, I mean, you touched on the, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they think of a university, they think of the, the teaching and the learning yeah. and then the research and the knowledge creation. But you run a center, and I think mm-hmm. less known is sort of what do these centers do? They're not all about the, you know, you mentioned that the, um, the learning is a part of it, but they yeah. sort of play a unique role in a university. Yeah, I, that's right. I mean, I, I actually can't speak for other centers, but I can, I can give you a sense of what mine's focused on. My, we're really trying to focus on engagement. The way that I've thought of engagement is trying to really participate actively in the policy process. And the kind of dream that I would have for this work is that policymakers who are responsible for legislating or executive, executive branch action in tech policy look to our center for different models that they can use to, fig- to think through how to develop effective tech policy. Sure. Um, when, when I was at Facebook, I, I ran a team that was, a, I ran a policy development team that was focused on substantive policy development. So we were looking for different policy models. We wanted to be able to say, here's a way to address an issue like encryption, or here's a way to address issue like problematic online content, or here's a way to address issues like zero rating. 
and propose solutions that weren't just Facebook solutions because increasingly during my time at Facebook, people trusted the company less and less. And if we said, here's a way to approach an, a problem, um, it was less likely to get policy traction, not sure. more. And so we would look out into the ecosystem and look for good ideas that we could suggest to policymakers for how to, for how to make um, good tech policy. And it was rare that we actually found ideas that we could, that we could use. Um, lots of academics tend to write for academic audiences by publishing things in journals sure, or yeah. law review pieces. There's certainly some of those that are actionable that you could use as the basis of policymaking. And there are many academics who have been successful in doing that. But often what's useful when you're looking around for those models is something shorter and more concise and really focused on the particular policy mechanisms at play. And there weren't very many of those. Um, and so I've kind of hoped to develop more of that kind of work and to be in close contact with policymakers and be relevant to them um, so that they can see us as a, resources, a resource for developing good tech policy. Yeah. And you're, I guess you're, you're an example of um, people coming out of, we see this people coming out of government and going into sort of lead centers at universities and coming out of, you know, out of big tech and going, it's a way for universities to, I think, attract that type of talent mm -hmm. and then contribute to public policy, which is really, as you've just articulated, a unique role that, that certainly that universities can play, but um, that people with your experience can find a home and then be contributing to the, the, to the formation really of both knowledge and of, of students and, and how they will pursue that in the world. Yeah, that, that certainly is the, is the goal. I, I think it's, um, it's still for me as a work in progress in terms of figuring out how to do that. I, I, universities are expert and really, really expert in research and teaching. That's the focal part for universities. Um, and most of my current colleagues um, don't come from the kind of background that I come from, which is, you know, my, the, the bulk of my career has been in a practitioner type role. And those, those two views, like a sort of student and research oriented view and a practitioner oriented view, I think in some are symbiotic in lots of ways, but they do have different orientations. And those, I think the things that each community values and the way that they're oriented to the world can, can differ. And so um, I, I do think it is a process of figuring out how to combine the two different perspectives. Matt, that's just what I wanted to ask you is, you know, what you said you left on a Thursday and, and came on a Monday. So, you know, clearly the contrast was, was, was right there. You know, what, what surprised you about transitioning um, into a more academic or university setting? Um, you know, and, and I think there's probably uh, there's pros and cons probably, but you know, what stood out to you as kind of the, the um, biggest change I think in, in making that jump. So I think the, um, I'll give an example of something that I thought was a sort of uh, I think it was surprising in a positive way. And then, and then some, an example of something that was more challenging. Um, the devotion of people in the university world to the student experience is really intense and wonderful. Yeah. Um, faculty in my experience are largely like deeply committed to making things better for students. They get a lot of joy and feel a lot of pride when they see students succeeding. Um, and really want students to be happy and supported and cared yeah. for. And I experienced that in October when I started, but I really experienced it um, in March and, and April um, when, when coronavirus was settling in and students right. were going to be more remote and faculty were really committed to trying to make that transition as smooth as possible and ensuring that faculty were really human in their relationship with students and supporting them at a time when students were potentially feeling isolated or didn't have as many outlets as they might have might have for support. 
Um, and so that, that part has been really wonderful. A thing that has been challenging is that I, um, I've really wanted to figure out what the a model looks like for policy engagement from a university perspective. And it's hard to find good models for that. I, I think there are a few universities that do it effectively. It's hard to find guidance on how to do that well. And I think um, this was true actually to some extent, even when I was at Facebook, what, what does it mean to influence public policy? What is a good policy result? Um, what does influence mean? How do you really, what does it mean to shape outcomes versus just doing meetings? And that, that was somewhat true at Facebook, but it is, you know, exponentially more true in my current job where I think it's felt to me to be unclear. I, if I really want to succeed in policy engagement and policy development, what does that look like? What are the criteria for success and how do I effectuate it? Um, and that's been a struggle. And I think in part because everything has sort of come back to other aspects of the university experience that I think in some ways are more core. Um, which is how do we teach well? Yeah, Matt, you you reminded me when you said um, you know that that how much of the how intense it is that they focus on the student and the student experience. I think yeah, when I you know when I sat in the senior leadership at Georgetown, I often would um, say, God, if I knew how if if students understood how much time of yeah. senior administrators is yeah. focused on you know, making this as strong as possible for them. Or I remember one time I called my parents and said, I didn't even know I should be asking for these things. Some of the things that students would come in and talk to administrators about, oh, and yeah. they, they are literally there to provide that formation and that experience for students. It is, it is so true. You don't feel the intensity of it, I think, until you're on the inside. Yeah, or just how much work it takes to prepare for a class. Like, I, I mean, I, I know when I was a student, I remember professors would allude to that and certainly coming into the university um, you know, in talking to various faculty members, people emphasize how much work it is. And it was an enormous amount of work. I mean, I, yeah. I spent a lot of time trying to create a good class for my students. And, and um, I'm not even sure that I did. It, like they resented <laughs> all these different components of it. There's all this stuff that I did that was like, I'm sure it could have been better, you know, just could have been much better. I tried to experiment with some things, some of that backfired. Um, I like tried to actually be really honest in one part of my class. And I think students, <laughs> didn't, students didn't like my point of view and were frustrated by it and felt like I was being dismissive of theirs. And, but I spent, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on it and really um, worked hard at it. Um, and I don't even think I'm at, my guess is like on the spectrum, like I spent less time on it than many other faculty members. I mean, people are really devoted to trying to teach good classes for their students. And that's impressive. Yeah. And, and it is a, it is a, um, I think something really to think about as they navigate now. I mean, just in the last week, look what the universities have, have been facing. I know some of them have started to put out fall plans and then you got the announcement from the administration on international students. You've got the complexities of college sports going on and yeah. you know, the smartest people I've worked some, I worked with some of the smartest people inside a university, but the intensity to, um, to grapple with all of these disruptive challenges and yeah, all of yeah. them at one time is extraordinary. Yep. It is extraordinary. I'm, I'm hopeful that universities rise to the challenge. I'm not sure I'm, or I'm hoping that they will. I'm not sure I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. Part of what we've been looking at is certainly the model and, you know, we could have full conversations on the sort of business model of universities and tuition. Yeah. But I think less known and less appreciated are the contributions that universities are making to public policy as you started to talk about. So I, I yeah. do want to get back to that. And I want to talk about, um, you know, you, you raised 
the, the phrase of shaping outcomes. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you share coming from inside of Facebook and, you know, yeah. share, did you, I mean, did you wake up at Facebook and the policy department every day and think about what is the outcome we want and how are we, how are we devising this? Or is that sure. more of an academic exercise? Oh no, that- all the time. Yeah. Like what is the best model for a certain thing and how can we make that model happen? And I think people probably hear that and they're like, that's a various Facebook's trying to like bend policy to its will. I would I hopefully reassure those people by saying I often felt like we weren't that good at it. So, um, <laughs> so, so don't worry. But because of the proximity of the company to the product we created, I thought we understood a lot of things about how to make that product function well in the world and the kind of regulatory environment that would be good for people. People think that that's bullshit. I mean, they think that the company is just interested in money. That, that wasn't my experience. My experience was that we were focused on trying to figure out how to have a product that worked well in the world that people could use in a way that empowered them, that was fulfilling, where they didn't have bad experiences. And because of the proximity of the product, you could evaluate various different policy proposals and very quickly understand which ones were going to be um, helpful and which ones were going to be problematic. People might disagree on whether something's helpful or problematic, but like I think the views that we had about that were kind of honestly arrived at and and were important and were rooted in user experience, just the way educators were rooted in student experience. We were rooted in the experience of how people would use the platform. And then, yeah, we like at our, you know, the best days at Facebook, you had a, a vision for what policy would look like and you went out and tried to make it happen. I mean, again, um, I, I wondered how effective we were at that. And I looked around at other industries, um, you know, the, the publishing industry, for instance, um, the telecom industry. And it looked to me like those industries were more effective in their advocacy efforts to bend regulation to what they wanted it to look like than the tech industry was. Um, I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but like, you know, the publishing industry got members of Congress to introduce a bill, actually both in the House and the Senate side, enabling publishers to collude. <laughs> making it lawful for publishers to engage in don't see conduct, that very yeah, conduct that would be illegal under antitrust law um, and, and applauding throughout, throughout the country about how great that was. And so, um, you know, they were pretty successful from an advocacy perspective. Matt, is that, I mean, ultimately what sort of drove you to move and to, to run the center and kind of impact that policy conversation from a different place? Yeah, I really wanted to try to, that's exactly how I thought of it. I wanted to try to impact it from a different place. And I wanted to see if I could be more effective in impacting it from a different place. It's it's interesting the way that that pans out. Like, um, you know, in lots of ways, when I was a company, I was like not known to the world in any way. Like I was doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And I sort of joked with reporters now when I talk to them that I'm transitioning from never wanting to be on the record to always wanting to be on the record because <laughs> it didn't serve Facebook well for me to be in the press in my own name. And it actually doesn't serve me well to just now to just be on background and not have my name and Duke um, in the press. <laughs> and so that, you know, so you get this kind of narcissistic hit from this idea that you're being impactful when you get into newspaper articles and stuff. But I'm not sure that that's actually more impactful in reality. Um, we, you know, I, I've wanted to be in the room with policymakers who are making decisions and talk to them about how I assess different policy models. And I did much more of that at Facebook, um, actually, and I'm, I'm hoping to do more of it at Duke, but I do miss the feeling of being in those rooms. And when it was fulfilling, it was really, really, really fulfilling. We did work on uh, an inquiry that the Australian Competition Commission was doing on, on the relationship between publishers and platforms. 
Um, and so I spent a bunch of time in Australia, which is a wonderful place to go. It was beautiful and swimming is nice and the food's delicious. It was wonderful. Um, but the, the most amazing part of that experience is a lot of the rooms that we were in there were really co- like brainstorming conversations, talking with people about how we saw our products and how we saw the news products and thinking kind of constructively and creatively about how to create a better news ecosystem in ways that were supportive of publishers, but didn't destroy components of platforms that were good for users. And that was really fulfilling work. And, um, I miss it and hope we're able to do more of it uh, from the center at Duke. Yeah, great. Well, dreaming of Australia, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about Matt's insights on the tech industry and the policy debates on the horizon. You're listening to HPS Insights. You're listening to HPS Insights, a regular podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies. Be sure to subscribe to hear the latest from the HPS team on policy debates affecting the business and political communities. Welcome back to HPS Insights. Our guest today is Matt Peralt, uh, the director of the Center on Science and Technology Policy at Duke University. We're uh, in a great conversation here and um, Matt, I want to come back in on, you mentioned, you know, looking at the publishing industry and I want to, I want to um, get your take now sitting inside of a university. Yeah. Um, like, what do you think is going to happen to the sector? What do you think in the immediate? What do you think? Um, and how does technology play a role in this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I don't know what will happen. I think that the thing that concerns me is that it will follow the, the trajectory of what's happened in publishing, which is that um, the sector innovated slowly as others figured out ways to innovate more rapidly and offer better business models and business better products. Um, and then as publishing has sort of, as the publishing business model has suffered um, and, and publishers have really looked to fill the revenue gap that they've lost, I think often rather than improving the quality of their products or figuring out ways to offer different products in a different economy, um, the focus has been on lobbying members of Congress and lobbying the administration to come up with ways that they can, um, as they would say, level the playing field, in my view, um, slow the pace of innovation and do it in a way that might do things like increase costs for consumers. And so advocating for an antitrust exemption for publishers is, I think, a, a really good example of trying to prop up an industry in a way that would harm users, um, likely by increasing costs or reducing quality. So I think universities right now are sort of at a fork in the road. I think um, it's unclear what the long-term impact of coronavirus will be. Yeah. I I guess what I was going to say is, can that be, is that an or or an and? Do you think they can do, I mean, do you have confidence that they could do both? Could they ask and petition for, do you think, is there a role for some federal support to keep this going? and to be able to innovate. Yeah, right. No, I mean, those two things aren't opposed. I mean, they aren't necessarily in opposition. I mean, the thing that I think I saw in publishing was like really asking for, I think, an, an industry, a handout for industry that would prop one industry up against another, where, where you would put government in the role really of being involved in industrial policy of sort of picking winners and losers in the economy and in ways that I think wouldn't be helpful for people um, or advertisers, I should say, because they're an important constituent, um, pushing advertising revenue away from platforms into publishers. That just doesn't seem like the right outcome from my standpoint, and it's mm-hmm. one that I don't think would benefit people. Um, even though people, when they hear about those dynamics, they're often hearing about them from newspapers, so they get a, a sort of biased perspective, I think, on on how much 
the current model, current publishing model benefits people. And I guess my point about the comparison to universities is I think my expectation is that there's going to have to be an enormous amount of innovation in terms of the business model and the structures. And when you see people clinging to an in-classroom model and saying, this is the only way that we can deliver education. And it's the most important thing. Nothing else is more important. So even if there are public health concerns, we need to be back in a classroom and we need students to be paying full tuition and we need them to be paying room and board. Um, and we need to have our hospitals open for elective surgeries. Um, when you see them um, advocating so aggressively for that, it starts to feel to me like we're reluctant to innovate and we're actually pushing for something that in the long run probably isn't going to serve students in the communities optimally. And my assumption, and it's a big assumption, but my assumption is more rapid innovation toward figuring out ways to accommodate more of what the world looks like right now and offer ranges of options for students, um, potentially different financial business models. And that may involve really dramatic shifts in what kinds of degrees are offered and the weight of those degrees and what departments, how many departments exist on campus. And as we've seen recently, what kind of sports are supported uh, by universities. Sure. There may be some really difficult shifts, but I think innovating to figure out what is that sustainable business model is helpful rather than just trying to preserve the old one. Yeah. And if you could, I mean, if you could recommend one innovation, immediate <laughs> innovation, what would you do? Well, I, I guess the, the thing that I have felt is um, that um, coronavirus is largely a curse, but there are some components of it that are a gift. One of them for me, for instance, is that we had our daughter in November. And so spending more time at home with her <laughs> has been wonderful. Um, another one I think is that it pushes, here's an example. I had a conversation with the head of online learning, learning innovation at Duke in October, right after I started. And he said, you know, one thing you could think about is teaching your class, teaching a class online. And I was terrified. I thought, like, I don't even know how to teach. How am I going to start by teaching a class online? I, that, it made me like feel panicky. He's like, but thousands of people could take your class. And I, I, that, I, and I thought, oh my God, I'm like now panicking even more. Um, you know, it was, um, I was daunted by the idea of jumping into teaching by jumping into online education. And then in April, we got a gift, which is we were pushed to innovate and we were pushed to figure out how to try to be good at online instruction, even though many of us weren't ready for it. And that, I don't think, I, I think I was like a fine online instructor. I don't think I was a great one. I think I have a lot to learn, but I think trying to be good at it is one of the opportunities we have from coronavirus and for students trying to figure out how to be good at learning. I think, it's kind of, I think it's kind of baffling to think that we better educate people by requiring them to come back to school. Um, when the, once they leave school, once they graduate from college, the bulk of their careers, they're gonna need to be good at video conferencing. They're gonna need to be <laughs> really effective at that. They're gonna need to know, to be able to have strong relationships with colleagues who they've never met in person. They're gonna need to figure out how to um, introduce different options and then get their recommendations adopted by senior executives in the course of a meeting that's held over Zoom. And to, and to pretend that it's better education to get people in classrooms um, at a moment when there's a lot of public health reason to not be in classrooms, I think is clinging to an outdated model. Um, so at least for sort of what I'm trying to do, I feel like for better or worse, it's an opportunity to try to practice what I preach, which is figure out how to innovate, evaluate the pros try to mitigate the cons. There are obviously tons of downsides, try to figure out ways to address them and see if we can come up with a, a better way to teach people. And Matt, I think, you know, as we're working with clients and working with groups on working through the crisis, um, I, you know, I think we'd largely agree, right? COVID has been, uh, you know, horrible in many of the terrible costs. 
Um, but I think there's a case to be made that in some cases it has accelerated some of these changes in a way that will have a long and lasting impact. To me, I mean, certainly, and I think you share the view that it, it, tech is a major part of that. Yeah. Um, not just in some of the longstanding uh, companies and services, but like, you know, I have a food delivery service that's popped up around the corner that tries yeah. to bring me gourmet Italian food like three times a week. Oh and I God, usually relent like once and then, you know, we have, it's, it's awesome. But, you know, I think tech in, in the current environment has on one hand showcased tremendous benefits of connectivity and um, certainly facilitating a lot of the economic activity, facilitating sweet podcasts like this one. We're, uh, uh -huh. we're on Zoom now, of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from your lens, like what is the how, what is the kind of COVID and coronavirus environment taught us about the value of tech? And then where are the shortcomings maybe that have been revealed? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I guess there's there's tech and then there's how people use tech. So when we sort of think about pivoting business models, I think the like most exciting place to look, which I just have been, it's similar to the example you gave, is, is looking at small businesses. I just have been blown away by the number of small businesses who basically said, on day one, my business was business model A. And then, and, and that was on Monday. On right. Tuesday, they're doing business model B. They just rapidly change from being a restaurant to a market, or they, or they change the products that they're making, or they change, they went from being 1% online retail to 80% online retail, or just the innovations that they've developed around public health um, and how they can deliver stuff safely to people. I think that's the model we should look at. Like, so little arrogance, at least from my standpoint, about saying, we used to do it this way and that's the way we have to do it. Well, of course, a dining experience has to look like A. We insist that because that's how a dining experience has always looked, it's gotta look that way. Instead, businesses have just shown unbelievable courage at a time when I think it would be so hard to show courage because yes. many of those businesses, their economic health is so fragile and they've just shown unbelievable courage in pivoting their business models really quickly, often in ways that require them to work like 20 hour days and stuff. It's just extraordinary. So that actually, I think, is in some ways, like, for me, what's most extraordinary about this moment. And, and I should say business models isn't just about, like, can you get your Cacio e Pepe via delivery, which, of course, is a wonderful thing. Shout out. Um, right but, but, but right also, discounts come my way. <laughs> exactly. Um, but also, like, um, musicians who are doing concerts from their living room and the way that athletes have connected with people. And, um, you know, it's just as extraordinary the way people have felt have figured out ways to deliver crafts um, and like moments of beauty to people who are sitting in their homes. Um, so I think that's been amazing. I think the, the, when tech has functioned probably best at this, it's less that you're seeing Facebook or Google or Amazon or Zoom or whatever it might be, or Instagram. It's that you're, those things are serving as conduits for extraordinary content. Um, the challenge of course is like, people are amazing and they're also crazy and terrible and horrible. And like, I, I think early in the coronavirus experience, at least I was living more in the beauty. I think now when you see people like, you know, biking helmetless down the middle of a highway, not wearing a mask and spitting on people like that kind of stuff, you know, you're more in touch with some of the challenges of humanity and tech companies are, are conduits for both types of communication. Yeah. And we've seen, you know, with some of the president's tweets, which I have found to be like really abhorrent and horrible. I think Facebook made the right decision in not removing them, but that doesn't mean that they like, that doesn't re remove the horrificness of them. And, um, and that's been, I think that's understandably been a real challenge for lots of people.
Yeah. And, you know, I think we can't separate you. You have well articulated um, sort of the benefits, but we, we can't separate that so big tech is coming back to Congress the end of this month. Yeah. And this is the environment in which they're coming. So we're not going to suspend the reality of this moment. And I wonder what you think the fact that we are, you know, five months into a global pandemic, ha- is, that, is that going to change that conversation in any way? Besides the fact that we may not have all of them holding hands sitting together in front of Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're just going to have the, the conservatives yelling about con- anti-conservative bias and the liberals arguing about hate speech and racist content and, um, and those kinds of issues. And I, I don't anticipate it's going to be particularly productive or a helpful way to explore the, the topics. My dad's a psychiatrist. And when I went to testify last summer at the the kids' table version of this hearing. This is like the grown-ups. <laughs> this is the grown the grown-ups hearing as the CEO uh, one. I was at the kids' table um, when I was going. My dad said, "I just hope you have. I hope this is an opportunity to have a really good conversation with the members of Congress." And I said, "That's not what a hearing is. You know, this yeah, is a- and, and, and where are those conversations actually happening in in our politics? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I don't know. I mean, I the the idea that I've kind of been batting around recently is like um is the idea of regulatory curiosity um so like what are the policy tools that we have to actually explore things and actually gather data and learn things that will enable us to make more effective policy and hearings are not that hearings are opportunities for i mean it's ironic given the topic of this hearing but like people will look to do a five second instagram or tiktok TikTok's maybe the most ironic, um, but, you know, TikTok video showing them bashing Mark Zuckerberg or showing them, you know, holding Jeff Bezos to account and they'll send out fundraising emails based on it and stuff. And that's not a, a venue that lends itself to gathering information that enables you to make better policy. Right, right. Yeah, regulatory curiosity. You should invite Mark Zuckerberg to Duke to have that conversation. <laughs> you think he'd come? What do you so, think? So I have no idea, but I mean, it... I know you meant that as a joke, but the funny thing is that gets to the heart of what's challenging for me right now is that like, I, I, it doesn't serve me well to run the Facebook center. Um, you know, I am trying to do something that like makes me not just about Facebook at a time when I know that's, those are the issues, the issues that Facebook faced are the issues that I know best. So even in my class, I, I taught a class on e-commerce and I think it was fine, but it wasn't, you know, I don't, I'm not as close to those issues as I am to issues around speech and law enforcement and antitrust and stuff. Um, so while I think the Duke community would benefit from interacting with someone like Mark Zuckerberg, or I should say like someone like Joel Kaplan, the head of the global policy team, who's brilliant and a, and a good leader and a, and a good person, or Aaron Egan, the head of the, of the privacy team, or Kevin Martin, the head of the US policy team, or some of the, the people who are kind of at my equivalent level of the company who I learned an enormous amount from, um, and who really like made me a better person in my job. Like it doesn't, I get eye rolls when I invite Facebook people to, to campus. So, but it, but it is like, it is a, I think it is a fair point and, and right. You don't want to be known as the Facebook center, but universities can convene a conversation that's not happening in other places. And that is. Yeah. So, right? yeah, that, that's, that's the dream. I mean, that's what I'm aiming for. That's the dream. I think the challenge is, there aren't that many people in the world who are agendaless. So like one of the things I think you maybe wanted to talk about was funding. And one thing I've realized is like people will say, I'm not going to take corporate funding, but I'm going to take foundation funding. Well, foundations have agendas too. It's not like corporations are are the only one with agendas. And if you look at who is supporting various different fund, various different policy movements, 
the funding tends to be concentrated in groups of foundations who support, you know, don't break up the tech companies, that movement supported by a group of foundations, break up the tech companies as quickly as possible, that movement supported by a group of foundations. And so the idea that like, we don't, that there's something that is neutral, I think is unfortunately like- Non-existent. Not of, yeah, non-existent, it's not a part of any conversation, yeah. whether it's academic, where academics are pushing their research and their perspectives and they wanna do things that are gonna result in you know, them getting more money for their cause or them getting more students in their classes or getting more prominence within the university. So it has struck me is that it's, it, you know, it's hard to have those constructive conversations, but, but I, do, I do hope to try. And I think you're certainly right that it's more possible to do from an academic home than it is from a corporate home. So Matt, that is your path to growing the center though. It's through the, it's through private funding and philanthropy. Is that? Yeah, I think that's the primary one. I mean, I like the setup, which is, you know, one of the things when, when I, um, when I left Facebook and came to Duke, a cousin of mine who has done a lot of kind of entrepreneurial work on his own, when I was talking to him about it, he said, welcome to the world of semi-entrepreneurship. And that's accurate. I, I, I'm really grateful that I have, uh, that I have a salary and I'm um, able to rely on that salary and, use that as a foundation to, to grow what we do. Um, but the entrepreneurial part is that, um, is that I'm incentivized to do a good job of raising money because we'll be able to do more work and be more effective the more money we bring in. And so um, I, I, this is a bet on me in many ways to, you know, if I'm successful, I'll, I'll bring in funds that will enable us to grow. And if I'm not, we'll be lim- more limited in what we can do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a point because I think we've talked a, a, and done some analysis on what the misperceptions of the industry are. And I think there's this thinking that everything at a university is fully funded by tuition or yeah. by sort of shilling for one side or the other. And I think yeah. you raise some of the, the complexities of expanding the work. Mm-hmm. Well, Elliot, Matt, another good conversation. We could go all day. Absolutely. Great. We, so uh, yeah, we loved having you, Matt. That was really fun. Thanks for giving us sort of the perspective um, from a center. And um, we're going to be looking out for your regulatory curiosity. <laughs> All right. Well, a great conversation with Matt. Elliot, you and I left here. Wow. What'd you think? I mean, it was great to get his perspective. I think the, the thing that sticks out to me is it's something that came up a couple times, right, is the role of universities and companies and other stakeholders in the public policy process. And I, you know, I think Matt made a great point that everyone assumes influencing policy is a, is a nefarious activity when, you know, it's an important part of setting optimal and best policy. You have to hear from a range of perspectives. You have to hear from the academic side. And certainly, you know, I think his work at the center translating some of those and, and kind of meeting in the middle from where, you know, there's a, certainly an, a, an, a perspective from the companies and from industry, and then there's academics that are just talking to each other, and someone's got to translate that. I thought that's a really, really strong point. Yeah, and really a, a interesting role for universities to play to be home for people who have had that experience. Absolutely. You know, I raised that, but I think, you know, I, I'm thinking he said some of those things that he wouldn't have said if he was sitting still at Facebook or, but that's the point. And there's the teaching and the learning and the influencing of policy that can come from that. So it's, a, it's not often a part of the, uh, the sort of teaching, learning, and research model of the universities, but really a, um, an important part of the policy process. So interesting that here we thought we were going in to have a conversation on just higher ed, and that was 
really, you know, a really, I think a unique moment with what's coming up on the Hill to have that conversation and get his perspective on the, on the tech side. So I'm glad you brought him to the pod and um, thanks for another great conversation. Thanks everybody for listening to HPS Insights and our special series on higher education. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and visit us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.